football, and then the bell rings, and you run into class, and I had algebra. <laughs> and you run, you just, and the teacher gets so mad, and you're sitting and you're sweating, and you're like, and now you gotta listen to algebra for like an hour and a half. We're gonna get really close to that experience right now, because it's, what, what time is it? It's 2.12, it's as hot as can be, and if you're not used to this humid heat, it's just sucking you out dry, and somehow I've gotta keep your attention. Uh, but then I've got Sam in here, and he can help, so Sam's always good for something to throw in there, so. We've got some big questions to deal with. I mean, we have some monumental questions to wrestle through, and uh, we're gonna make it as far as we can. We didn't make it all that far in the last class. Uh, oh, hey, uh, David, I need to press this, right? You already did? And if I get stuck, Billy promised to help. So let's pray and ask God's help for our time together. <coughs> Father, we come before you and just, again, we want to be honest about where we're at. We're a bit spent mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, Lord. We just don't have much left in the tank, and we know that. And, uh, Lord, we're thankful that you're patient with us. Uh, Lord, these are some difficult questions that some folks have. And, and yet we're at a difficult time of the day when it's hard to absorb, it's hard to listen, it's hard to think, it's hard to process. It's hard to do anything at this point of the week. And yet, Lord, some really important things are hanging out there. And I just pray that you would help us sort through some of this. Help us to wrestle. Help us to think well. Give us a mind to understand and ears to hear. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So not only do we have all this, we have a grinding pull out. before we start. I'm not the Bible answer man. I don't have a radio show. Don't claim to be one. We'll never have a radio show. Uh, but I hope that maybe we'll just add another thought or two, a bit of clarity, maybe just an additional question. Sometimes we have questions 
And sometimes we're not asking the right questions. And sometimes we just even need a different set of questions to wrestle through. That's something I've been learning in my own life is, Rick, sometimes you're asking the wrong question. Sometimes we need a new set of questions. So I'm hoping that we'll provide a bit more clarity. Um, by the way, staff, you feel free to jump in, chime in uh, at any point, especially you, because we're going into some of your stuff. And uh, yeah, so with that, let me read question one. So we're going to hold off on the whole predestination, free will, double predestination, preterition, and superlapsarianism debate for a few moments before we just get swallowed up by all that. All right. I'm just, how do Christians come up with these kinds of terms? You know, what is up with us? Superlapsarianism, that is just crazy. It sounds cool. Sam, weren't you the one who had the J.F. Hacker milk in the cup? Thing? Wasn't that you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've never forgotten that. Yeah. You can explain that when we get to it, by the way. Uh, it's been a long time ago. Oh, that was that yeah. I think Sam got to entertain J.F. Packer one afternoon or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Nice guy. Yeah. So, whatever I don't explain, Sam will. Uh, question one. What happens when our prayers aren't answered? You ever wrestle with that question? But if you wrestle with prayer, the next thing, one of the next things that you're going to wrestle with is what happens when your prayers aren't answered? What if all that we feel is the silence of God? Those are, are those important questions? Is, are those important questions for this group of people? Or because we can sort of move on from this question. We've got a pile of them here. What happens when your prayers aren't answered? You ever wrestle with that? So, I just need like some head. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what happens if all that we feel is the silence of God? Um, so let, I, I want to divide that up in two parts. Um, and I just spent a little bit of time thinking through this and jotting, jotting down some thoughts for us um, on this whole idea of what happens when our prayers aren't answered. And that actually is an extremely relevant question. Uh, and you find it actually time and time again, not just in our experiences, you find it in the Bible. You find it throughout the Psalms. You find it even in odd places, Isaiah 58, where the people of Israel praying and their prayers aren't being answered in places like all, just all over the place. But before we begin to wrestle with the question of why, doesn't, why aren't our prayers being answered, I think that there's some assumptions that are beneath that question that we're assuming to be true. And we actually need to highlight some of those assumptions before we talk about God answering our prayers and or not answering our prayers. Because we're actually assuming a few things to be true. Because Jesus or God through his word has told us very clearly in certain situations that he either answers prayer and or doesn't answer prayer for certain kinds of reasons. And so we want to understand some of that, right? The most basic assumption that we might throw out there is Jesus says, you don't have, because this is what you find in James chapter 4. The principal assumption is that we're e even asking, that we're actually making clear, you do not have, James 4 says, because you do not ask. And so one of the assumptions that we have is that we're actually spending the time coming before Jesus, who asks us very often, like he does in, in uh, Matthew, what do you want me to do for you? 
Have we actually told him? Do we actually know what, we, what we're asking God to do? Have we spelled that out? James 4 says, you don't have because you don't ask. So one of the assumptions is, is a very simple assumption. Are we asking God? Are we taking the time to come before him and to ask? So that's assumption number one. Assumption number two, James goes on to say, you ask and do not receive because you want to spend it on your pleasures. I've got an illustration here. Um, it just happened recently at our church. We've got a gal at our church. Her name is Carrie. She's a great gal. She came to us. She met with me, and she said, Rick, I love your church. I love coming. She says, but I'm a humanist. I've been an atheist most of my life, and I love this church. I said, great. We're glad to have you. That's who we get. And, uh, and God has been working. She's one of the brightest people I've ever met. She's one of my favorite people in the church now, too. And God, I think God is bringing her to faith. I think she actually may have already become a Christian. And uh, so she was talking to me, and we were talking about some of this. And she said, you know, Rick, recently I've been praying that God would grant me a guy. I don't know exactly how she framed it. She says, and I've been praying, and I've been so disappointed with God recently because I've been praying that God would grant me someone. And she said, but then I realized that actually what I was praying for, I was praying that God would grant me a substitute for him. And I've been praying earnestly that God would grant me an idol. That God would give me someone who would fill me at the level that God is, is supposed to fill me. And I was just amazed by her profound insight. Number one, because knowing where we just came from a year ago. She says, I've been praying for months for God to send me a replacement for him. And she goes, and I've struggled with God because he's not answered my prayer. James says, you pray and do not receive because you, or you ask and do not receive because you're asking for God substitutes sometimes. Things that will take his place like Carrie was praying for. And that's, so one of the assumptions that we have is that what we're praying for is not God replacements. Things that are meant to, things, seeking things to satisfy us in ways that God was meant to satisfy us like Carrie did. Carrie realized she needed to let God satisfy her in that place in a way no man was ever intended to satisfy, the way no man will ever satisfy and will feel burdened at the thought of needing to satisfy her at that level. And that she would therefore be freed up and that God might eventually grant her a husband someday. But that, that was an awakening. So that's a second assumption. The third assumption I'm just going to call the elephant in the room that needs to be shot. Um, you ever have a meeting with someone? I had I had a guy in Long Beach, and we were part we sort of were partners on a cafe, and, and it just blew up to be a just gigantic mess, uh, and it, re it just relationally sp spiraled down to be a nightmare of a situation. And we would get together and deal with the business of the cafe and we would talk about our kids and it was just it was awful and why was it so awful you ever go into these meetings where you could just cut the tension in the room and the problem is you're talking you know we're talking about coffee choices we're talking about our kids we're talking about advertisement and what's the big elephant in the room this guy doesn't like me this guy has a problem with me i sort of have a problem with him 
and it's a big elephant. It's just walking around the room, right, as we're talking. And we don't address it, and he knows it's there, and I know it's there, and we just sort of leave it be, right? Let the elephant wander. And I think the same thing happens in our relationship with God. We rebel against God. We run away from him. We doubt him. And then we come before him in prayer, and there's this huge elephant. And the elephant is our rebellion. It's our disbelief. It's that we bought into the words of the Rabshakeh. Remember that I was talking about the messenger, and we say, God, I actually don't believe you have the ability to deal with any of this. And it's the big elephant in the room. And because of that, we grieve the spirit. And I think we need to shoot the elephant. And God weighs heavy on us. And so one of the assumptions that I'm, that I'm supposing is that we're shooting the elephant. We're keeping our account clear with God. When we need to confess, we're confessing. We're open and honest in our relationship with God. Um, and then lastly, we come to... Can someone Would someone pick up and read... Uh, can I have a reader? I actually had a question. Okay, so before we do that, this is why we're not, this is good. This is why I have 16 questions and we're going to get three done. <laughs> so are you saying, like, because we sent to God, we'll grant us our request? Is that sort of what it sounds like? Well, okay, there's two parts to that. When we send part of our request, what we're hoping for is what we're requesting of God is that God would renew us, that God would restore us, and that God would revive us, right? God hears that. It's the, it's the heart of repentance. But then there's the heart that's living in rebellion of God, that's living, it's determined to live apart, that's just living in sin. And by that is grieving the spirit, and we're wondering why we sort of don't have the ear of God. And you have places like even Isaiah 58, and so because of that, you're, no, you're not really following Jesus. You're engaged in an exercise that looks like Christianity, but it's not because it has nothing to do with Jesus has everything to do with programs and procedures and bells and whistles and spiritual dynamics, but not God. And you have something very similar happening in the Old Testament with the people of, the, uh, of Israel. In Ezekiel, they're at the temple, and they're doing all this worship like God has commanded, but the only one who's not there is God. He's left. He's left the building. Or in Isaiah 58, God tells the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, look, you're praying and you're going through all of this, but it's going nowhere, and it's true. You feel like your prayers are going nowhere. It's true. It's just because your heart has left me. And it's demonstrated by the way that you live. And he actually says your prayers, are, your prayers are going nowhere. Change the heart, which changes the way you live. And all of a sudden, your spirituality will be renewed in your moment. So it's a complicated answer to that question. I don't know if anybody else would have something to say about that. Derek? <laughs> be careful when you throw that hand up there. Uh, go ahead, Karen. But do you have a different question? Oh, that was just a pure stretch? I had a question, but I forgot. It's like an auction in here. Sold. that we're going to look at and that, that I want to look at. And I want, uh, so that's a great comment, Billy. 
Did someone want want to read? Would you read uh, 1 John 5, 14 and 15? Yeah. 1 John what? 5, 14 and 15. This is the profound confidence that we have, that if we ask anything according to his will, that's exactly what Billy was saying, you start living a life of rebellion in sin, you're no longer praying according to God's will, you're already outside of it, living in sin and rebellion from him. And that's why this it's a two-sided question, but in that place, God's will is to repent and to turn, and God hears that prayer, right? But if we ask anything according to his will, the confidence that we have is that he hears us, and we're told that if he hears us, we know the thing, we have the thing for which we've asked. That is a bold and audacious promise. I think part of the, one of the things that we do in Christianity, by the way, is we take the great statements of the Bible and we reduce them down. We're afraid of them. God has promised some enormous things to you. Come to me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's an enormous promise. Understand my will. And you can pray with confidence, and the confidence of understanding and knowing that you have the thing for which you've asked. That's an audacious promise. What does that mean? We just got a bit of some of that from Billy. That's a great clarification. Let me ask, let me go back, let me uh, bring up something that happened at my church last week. Uh, it happened last week. It continued to unfold this week. Um, I heard about it being up here. We have a gal who's coming to our church. Um, and she's been married not quite a year. I, I'm going to say 10 months. And her marriage is all but over. She's 26. I've known her for a long time. And she's coming to our prayer meetings. And she's come and she's heard verses like that. And she's praying begun to pray that God would save her marriage. Now let me ask you this. Can God do that? Might God do that? Will he do that? We don't know. Has God made a promise to this gal to save her marriage? No. Right now, she's convinced that she has a promise by God to save her marriage. But has God promised that? No. And so the issue that we really got to, and this is what I sat down with her and talked about, is what has God promised you? There's the possibilities of things that God might do and the sort of the mystery of who he is because God is a good and gracious God and he's promised to be good and gracious. And I don't know what he's done, but what has God promised her? What can she hold on to right now? That according to Roman, uh, 1 John 5 will be true for her. Are there things that she can hold on to? Do we have anything to say to her? What can we say? This is where your faith gets shoe leather. 
So God has a plan for her, and, and we can say more about that. That's very true. That's a good point. And you're, you're actually saying something that I happen to know to be true about both of them. Very arrogant people. Very self-reliant people. And what you just said, by the way, I'm, I'm coming, reflects what happened to Paul in Paul's life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that there's something worse than bad things happening to God's people. And that's the something that's worse than bad things happening to God's people is when God's people become self-reliant. And so what God causes to happen, happen to Paul is bad things... God caused bad things in Paul's life so they would be brought to the point of despair so they would learn to rely upon God the God who raises the dead who does the unthinkable and the impossible because I learned to start relying on God and so that's a great point that one of part of God's plan according to Mariah is that God might be doing this work and I think he's doing it in both of them and hopefully we don't know that God might bring them back but that's something that God might be doing maybe that she needs to learn how to grow more in Christ before she gets into a relationship because he he needs to be number one before her husband or fiance or whatever. So that we're sort of heading down a different path, which is the path of just sort of biblical wisdom or, or counsel. But for her right now, it's sort of a, a little bit different question. What are the promises that she can rely on, that like 1 John 5 are true for her? That's a little bit different question, Sam. God promises to never leave her or forsake her, and that nothing will separate her from her love of Christ. Amen. She, in fact, one of the things that she's terrified, she's just terrified, terrified <laughs> paranoid and terrified of, which is terrified. <laughs> one of those, when you go to seminary, you learn words like that become terrified, but she's terrified that of losing her security, of being abandoned. What Sam said is God's promise to her, I will not leave you as an orphan. He will always be for her, right? More than that, he is her husband who will nurture her and cherish her, Ephesians 5, right? Because she's a part of the church, the bride of Christ. What else does she know? What else? What other kind of promises are out there? Just one or two more. Yeah. There's a promise. Uh, one. God does all things for the good of those who love Him. Right. Yeah. That somehow God will work this, and which is the promise, by the way, that people don't like to hear. You know, hey, God will work this out for good, and people just hate that comment. You hate it if you doubt that words are power for battle. Because you think, those words mean nothing. They can't really address this. Yes, but if Hezekiah is right, those words mean everything. If Jesus rose from the dead and the power that raised him works in our life, then you can believe that God can work this out for good in her life, right? And even in his, right? Some of the other things that she can believe. God is for her the God of comfort and the Father of mercies. He's the God of all hope who will fill her with all joy and peace and believing by the power of the Spirit, Romans 15. He's the God of encouragement. He's the God of endurance. He's the God who promises in Hebrews 4, 16, 
grace and mercy to meet her specifically to match the need of the moment of her life. And God has promised, absolutely, and she can believe it with confidence, 1 John 5, that God will be that for her. Those are promises. God will, grace and mercy to help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. These are great promises. Go ahead. Go through the door. Um, you know, I, I think when, when we're asking this question, why doesn't God answer my prayers? We can mean it in a couple of different ways. But more often than not, what we mean is, why isn't God changing this particular circumstance? And that's essentially what the question is. Why isn't God taking this away? Or why isn't God giving me strength? And I think along with uh, remembering the promises, some of you were saying primary lessons that that my wife and I learned when we walked through a, a struggle with infertility was just that we were asking the wrong questions. Um, you know, typically as people, when we want our circumstances to change, the first thing we ask is why. Why is this So that's part of that different set of questions, and I actually think that there's a question that goes right with that. Because right when you're asking why, I think one of the things that she's asking is, am I still in the stream of God's plan? For me? Have I gotten, have I been jettisoned out of the stream? Are God's promises for me no longer true? Um, and to know that I'm still in the stream, I'm still in the family, God's purposes are still true for me, and now how should I respond? I might not actually know all the why. But I know the what's. I know that God is still accomplishing His purposes, and now I need to think how I ought to respond. Um, we got a. There's a host of promises. By the way, one thing I've done. Hebrews six. I, I brought this to show you. I have it up here because it goes everywhere I go. Um, Hebrews six says that God has given you His precious His promises, and His promises. Actually, that's verse. But in Hebrews 6, that God has given you his promises, and his promises are anchors for the soul. In other words, if you live life at all, to live life means that you come into situations where life is going to grab you by the neck and put you on the mat. The storms of life are going to rage, and the unthinkable is going to happen. And what God says is, to enable you to get through those moments, infertility or whatever it is, I've given you a set of promises. I've promised to be a certain kind of God for you and with you. 
And those promises are the anchors that will steady you in those times. And my question for you would be, what, how many anchors do you have? What promises can you call upon at that time? When you finally realize that you need to, like Hezekiah, go into the temple, do you actually have anything to say? This girl I was telling you about who confessed about praying for an idol, part of what turned her is she went to the mountains one time just to get away for a spiritual retreat. She didn't know what she meant. She goes, Rick, the thing that scared me is I bowed down to pray and I had nothing to say. And it just scared her. And then God began to move in that kind of way. Do you have some promises to pray? So what I do is I have a journal of God's promises and prayer. And I just take the promises of God and I write them down. I can't remember all these. There's a ton of them. Number one on this page. Call upon me in the day day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. It's a good promise. Not one that's, that's a free one for you. Psalm 50, 15. But you know, think you know that's just a practice. You know, it's something I do. You don't have to do this, but anyhow, that's question one. Uh, <laughs> look, how? That's, what time are we supposed to be done? This is three. We're doing worse than the last one. Um, all right, so we're gonna go into the whole. We got Patrick here, so we we'll, we'll go swim in a stream of predestination for a while. Um, let me start before we jump into the stream. I'm going to read this. Yeah, let me start by reading a question or two, and then a third one just came up. Um, so let me read these three questions. They all go together. So I understand that none of us actually deserve to be chosen by God to be saved and that it's great that he actually does choose us. So this person is bought into everything that's been taught and says, I agree, I understand that. But here comes the big but, right? But what I don't understand is that if hell is a punishment, why are non-believers eternally punished for a choice that God made? These people never had any chance of being saved from the point that they were born because they were already predestined for hell. Anybody struggled with a question like that before? See some, okay, a lot of folks. With it goes this one, and then a third one. Um, how should we Christians evangelize people if God's predestination is determined already? In other words, how do we uh, reconcile this doctrine with uh, seeming blanket imitation of the gospel to the world in John 3. Um, and then the question that came up that I was talking about afterwards was, and then how do we reconcile all this with free will? Which is the, 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 the perpetual age-old question. So uh, I think we'll do the evangelism one last after we sort of go through this, the ones before that. I was actually you want to start with evangelism? We'll start with evangelism. Because I think, I think in some ways that's the easiest. Okay. And I am one of the most important for it. Um, and it's, it's a frequent question. And, and uh, we need to understand first, you know, John 3 and other passages, that when, when Jesus is talking about the world, 
know, we've already seen those other categories. I've laid down my life for my sheep, for those whom the Father has given me for the church. Who's he talking to in John chapter 
the, the gospel falls on some soil that doesn't bear fruit. But what Patrick is saying is God is the God who, who alone is able to change the skin like the, of the Ethiopian or to change the spots on a leopard. He's the only one who can penetrate and change a heart. And, uh, and, we bel- and we sort of pray that way and we act that way. The, God, the gospel is the power of God that can do the unthinkable. It can take a dead person and make them alive. It can take a person, you know, in a different kingdom, in the kingdom of darkness, and transfer them in the kingdom of God's beloved son. But the gospel is God's power to change people. And that's exactly what, what he's saying. So, okay. um, I'm wondering how far we should go with, with this question. The other thing I would say about this is very simple. Why do we evangelize if we believe in predestination? Most simply, the, the most simple reason why do we evangelize? What's that? Obedience. There it is. Simply, even if you you leave today and you walk out that door and you think I'm no more clear than I was, why do we evangelize? Because He told us to. Why do we pray? He told us to. It's like Spurgeon said. Look, if if God saved people by me finding yellow stripes on their back, I'd be running around.
So that sort of leads into the next batch of questions, which is actually, or that's the third question, which is just a combination. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have a place that you want to go here with far as this has sort of been your topic this week, which is that how does God condemn people, which is the whole double predestination debate, and then the issue of will, free will. But your choice was determined by your desire. And, and um, does that so far make sense? Um, and the same thing happens in our spiritual life. And so when we're slaves to sin, we are free moral agents. We're not robots. You know, God isn't like a puppet master up there. You know, and we're like these little marionettes. But, but what happens is, as slaves to sin, we always and only can choose to do the things that our hearts desire, which apart from the work of the Spirit, is And as Christians, when we're filled with the Spirit, something new begins to happen. And we have two Gratify 
question into that, what he just said? Anybody want to ask a question into that? Can you restate the question? Well, I guess like if God were to, you know, God sent Jesus to die, and His only Son died on Earth, and all of that, and all that love, why would that love, that death, uh, not be personified? Right. And, and it's interesting because I don't think it makes sense. The Apostle Paul did. When we get to Romans chapter nine, Paul ends that ends chapter nine with basically hypothetically. I would say at the end of, the, of this whole conversation on predestination, you actually end up at, at exactly the point Patrick is making. I think the only, thing that, only additional thing that Paul ever throws into this is he says, he proposes something where he says, what if in the ages to come, out of a desire to highlight the magnitude of his grace and his mercy, God passes over some and chooses others to show them the surpassing value of his grace. That somehow, in the ages to come, as we're there with him, part of what we'll be immensely grateful for and thankful for is that you weren't passed over, but that God chose to show you the great riches of his kindness in Christ Jesus to you. And one of the ways he's chosen to highlight that is through sort of the selectivity of choosing some and passing over others. We may not, that might be a mystery. To, that actually, I think, is part of some of the hard things of God. Peter reads the letters of Paul and says, this stuff is hard. That's what he says. Like, this stuff is hard in Second Peter at the end of his letters. And it is. 
it's, it's a bit of a mystery. But this is kind of off track, but um, thing that confused me is like, what about people who like are Christians when they're younger, or seem to be, and then all of a sudden when they're older, does that mean like they weren't predestined or they weren't truly seeking God? Because like how Miss Andrea said, like if you're truly seeking God, then you were predestined. But people who fall away, like how does that work? It's your topic. <laughs> <laughs> I know people that have been excommunicated and they were excommunicated and fell deep and headlong into sin and they were of us and they left us right and now thinking of one of them they're people that encourage me for a moment there I couldn't answer the question whether that person was chosen by God or not right only eternity will tell me that my question is is that person going to believe is that person, you know, been transformed by God's grace? And the question I have to wrestle with is, or the need of the moment is not to determine if they're predestined. The need of the moment is to evangelize them again. That's actually the need of the moment. It's actually not my place to ask that question. So it's, I think we have to wrestle with a different set of questions. Last comment. I know we're way over time. Back to Garrett's question. Because Garrett asked, he asked the old question of, did God choose us because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that we would choose him? Yeah. 
Or is no, God chose us. Not not because he thought we were going to choose him, he just chose us because he chose us. Which one is it? It's the second. Sorry, I have page I had I had both. But the first was there at the but it wasn't like these are both true options. It was like, hey, one of these is true and one of them is not. Yeah. And so first, God doesn't look down the corridor of time and choose us based on our response. Uh, rather, God chooses us. And the, the point was so when scripture talks about foreknowledge, it means something different than, oh, okay, I know you didn't I misspoke. We're going to let Pat, the youth pastor, get make the final. You're going to make a statement, right? You're not going to yeah, ask a question. No, no, no question. All right. Statement. I was going to say the, the prologue to John's gospel, which is the first 18 verses, like just kind of beautifully weaves it together. Um, it talks about the light of the, you know, light of the world, the light coming into the darkness of the world. Um, let me just read it real quick. Can you just turn around? Like, Stand up. Yeah, sure. I'll just, I'll just read it. I'll just read the prologue. Um, but it kind of weaves them together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was light, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, his name was John, who came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all men believed through him. He was not the light that came to bear witness. True light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there we have those receiving and those not receiving him, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. And then you have their God being the one who brings that new birth that Nathan talked about with Nicodemus. Um, it's, it's his initiative, yet, you know, there's that receiving of the light of the world. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen the glory, and glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, He, com- he who comes after me ranks before me from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And I think that's it's just like it's coming together those two So we're just going to wrap it up on that word. And let me just say, if you really have some questions here, if like we just made it worse for you, <laughs> which is highly possible, like, come talk to Patrick, talk to me, find somebody. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, I, there's probably a little bit of time before this whole thing is over, and we, we could find a little bit of time. So please come and talk to us. With that, you're dismissed, and you can talk to us right now. So.